Hello, and welcome to Stern Chats. I'm Heather Rosen-Konowitz. And I'm Ethan Singh. For today's show, we have the pleasure of speaking to Jake Berlin, a Stern MBA alum and assistant professor for the Driving Market Solutions for Clean Energy class. Jake has had a fascinating career in the climate and clean energy space. He has worked at startups, venture capital firms, utilities, and consulting firms. Jake also sits on the advisory board for the NYU Stern Center for Sustainable Business. In this episode of Stern Chats, Jake shares his industry expertise, how he used his Stern MBA to pivot into the clean energy space, and advice for current or prospective students interested in going into this industry. Well, I honestly can't wait to hear more about this amazing person. Let's just get right into it. Great. So, hi, Jake. Welcome to Stern Chats. Thanks so much. So glad to be here. Yeah, we're really excited to speak to you. Um, so it's not often that we get a Stern alum, an assistant professor, someone who sits on the advisory board for the Center for Sustainable Business and works in a really interesting and important industry to come on the show. So we're looking forward to the conversation. Fabulous. I guess I check all the boxes. Check, check, I check. get a free donut or something. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we would love to start by learning more about you, hearing about your career journey as a whole. But since your story has so many layers and pieces to it, we were thinking maybe you could first tell us about your early career pre-Stern and your time at Stern as well. Sure. That sounds great. So um, before I came to Stern, I worked entirely in the nonprofit world. So I spent a year in AmeriCorps um, running mentoring programs for at-risk youth. I ran a uh, community development corporation for a few years. I was also uh, a union organizer for a few different unions, which is not something I talked about or admitted very much while I was at Stern, um, but it did happen. Um, so my early career was entirely devoted to kind of service and impact, um, so much so that when I decided to go to business school, which was kind of a tough decision for me, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but when I told my parents that I was going to go to business school, my mom actually burst into tears, um, something I like to remind her of every now and then. Um, you know, but it, it worked out. I mean, I think in her mind, she was like, oh, you're selling out. Like, how can you have a career in business that's also about impact? And I, I like to think I've pulled that off to date, and I hope that continues. But um, so I think I was somewhat atypical coming to Stern. I didn't know much about Stern. I, I had never heard of Demodorin, for example. I, you know, I ended up Side note, taking two of his classes and loving them. But, you know, I just I walked in not understanding what I was what I was in for at all, um, which made my time here interesting. I was not going down the banking track or the consulting track or anything like that. I was kind of going down my own path. And at the, at the time, there wasn't much around energy or sustainability or climate happening um, at Stern. There were some things happening elsewhere at NYU slowly. This was, you know, I started in the full-time program in 2007. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I, I, but I did find my place here. Um, a lot of that was through kind of extracurricular activities. So I got very heavily involved in what was then called the Social Enterprise Association. It morphed into a, a different group. Um, but I got very involved in that. Um, and I ran something called the Stern Campus Greening Initiative, which was just, you know, how do we make the campus um, a more efficient, climate-friendly place to live and work? Um, so I got very involved in that. And by extension, got involved in things at the law school and public policy school and other places around the, around the university. So um, my time here was, you know, a combination of the academics, but also all these other things. And it was an opportunity for me 
to grow into that role. I mean, you hear this a lot. People come to, I think, all graduate schools, but business school especially, and they use it as an opportunity to pivot. And I had no experience in clean energy or climate coming in, but I just leaned heavily into the opportunities on campus and used that as a way to kind of enter uh, it for my career. So that it kind of worked out, I think. Um, but and so I'm, I'm thankful to the opportunities I got at Stern to do that. Yeah, that's a great story of a pivot and coming to campus and using all the resources available to you to show an interest and build knowledge about that industry. So. What I love most about that is how you actually made it your own, because that's the big business school pitch. Come here, reinvent yourself <laughs> in your 30s, and you'll be great. But you actually did that. But I want to get to your career now, because you, you make jokes about it, but your career is actually very cool and really interesting. Heather and I had done the most traditional things possible, banking and consulting. Yeah. <laughs> so, but you, you dove straight into the clean energy and climate space. Where has that journey taken you since business school, and how did it lead you back here to Stern? Yeah, so, you know, I saw an opportunity in 2007. Um, I, I knew I wanted to continue to, to have an impact. Like, you know, the paycheck is a nice thing, but it's not my primary motivation. I want to improve things in some way. So I knew that about myself. And at the same time, I saw, you know, there's this huge climate challenge coming. And I, I, I thought to myself, that's going to translate into massive business opportunities, like this huge disruption, new industries and change. Um, and so I wanted to become a part of that. Um, I was here during the financial crisis at Stern. So it was doubly hard to figure out like, okay, what jobs are there out there? Um, but I was able to get an internship at a um, clean energy startup called Rentricity. Um, I worked there uh, for my summer between my MBA one and MBA two years, and then um, worked there all through my second year and uh, and joined full-time after graduating from Stern. So that was a startup, which, by the way, is a great experience because you do a little bit of everything uh, in a startup. So I, you know, I would recommend it to anyone who's interested. Um, and from there, I've kind of hopped around the industry from place to place. So I've worked um, in consulting kind of twice, uh, once for a company called Wildan Energy Solutions, running really big energy efficiency programs for utilities and state governments. Um, another time for ICF, uh, where I was advising um, similar types of clients on the energy transition. Um, I also worked for a utility in the middle of that, the New York Power Authority. Um, and I also started up a venture fund called Rethink Energy. Um, and today I work for the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority, which is a mouthful, which is why everyone calls it NYSERDA. Uh, and I'm part of our tech to market team. So I help um, climate tech startups kind of grow, commercialize and scale. Um, so I've kind of been all over the place, but it's all been oriented towards how do we bring new clean energy and climate tech um, solutions to market and help them scale. I think one of the really cool things about clean energy is it's being driven both by the private sector and the public sector. And I think those are two very different experiences. And mm -hmm. the thing you bring to this is the bevy of experience of being in all of it, consulting um, from that perspective, private side, and then the government. What are the differences that you feel from being on those two sides of the fence? And mm -hmm. did you think it helped make you a better overall clean energy person overall? Yeah, it's a great question because, you know, there are a lot of people who would argue that the private sector is only interested in climate um, because the public sector, the government is kind of forcing their hand to do so. Um, you know, that's not entirely true anymore. Now there's a lot of companies that see the business opportunity in it, and they are leaning in on that because it's a revenue opportunity. Um, but, 
you know, for the most part, it has been the public sector kind of leading on climate and then the private sector following or being dragged along. Um, and especially in the energy space where the private sector is usually represented by utilities and other really large institutional type um, entities that haven't changed in a long time. And so it's very difficult for them um, to move and shift. Um, I've found it really useful to jump back and forth between the private and the public sector, um, which you know makes my resume maybe look a little scattered. But I, I think it's to I think I think it's been to my benefit um, because you know this is a very tightly woven ecosystem where all these different players need to come together. Right, we're talking about heavily regulated industries. Um, we're talking about you know supply chains that go many layers deep. Um, and so being able to understand those different perspectives is extremely helpful. So just to give you an example, you know, I worked for a number of years at a utility. I then went, jumped back into consulting and worked for utilities. My clients, most of them, many of them were utilities. And it was very useful for me to be able to tell them war stories of my time at a utility because it gave them comfort. Oh, this person actually knows our world and knows what we're talking about. Because honestly, a lot of consultants would come to them and try to get in their good graces, but it doesn't carry the same weight unless you've lived it. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. It sounds like a huge value add to be able to have that perspective. Yeah, um, it, it absolutely is. And and I think, you know, uh, from my from my viewpoint, like you need to be able to put yourself in the shoes of the other other players here, because every this energy transition is extremely disruptive. Um, it means that business models um, and jobs are changing pretty radically. And if you're only coming at it from one perspective, you're going to miss um, the threats and the opportunities on the other side of the table. So, yeah, it, I've, I found it extremely useful to, to kind of get all those different viewpoints. Yeah. So in addition to doing all of that in your career, you've also found time to come be on the advisory board for the CSB and recently start teaching or co-teaching a course about clean energy in the Stern MBA program. So what brought you back to Stern to do these things and, and how has that experience been? So, I mean, in some respects, I never really left. Um, you know, when I was an MBA two, I was brought in to, to guest lecture in some undergraduate classes about um, clean energy. I, I wasn't that far into my career on it. It's, I, it'd be really interesting to go back and see what I actually told them because who knows if it was <laughs> right or even remotely right. Um, but I, I kind of stuck with that and over the years kept being pulled back into classes at the MBA level mostly to guest lecture and the like. And then about four years ago, um, Tonsi Whalen, who's the director of the Center for Sustainable Business, um, started building an advisory board and trying to populate it with more Stern alum. Um, and so she asked me to sit on that, and that's been a very engaging experience um, to really just get back involved more heavily in the school. Um, and then, yeah, this semester I'm teaching uh, driving market solutions for clean energy um, at the MBA level. This is a, a class within the business and society program. Um, and it's been great so far. I mean, it's only been a few months, but I've really loved it. Um, you know, for a number of reasons. One, it's it's great to be able to um, see the interest um, that students have. You know, when I was here, uh, there was no energy club. I started one up with a friend of mine. Um, there is one now. I believe it's a different iteration or something. But like the interest from students is so much higher in this. And one of the great things is, you know, the student uh, body in the class, it's mostly Stern students. 
but it is not entirely students. Students, there are public policy students, there are law students, there are students from Gallatin, there's like journalism students, like a lot of people care about this because it's not just a niche issue anymore. Um, so that kind of energy and excitement has been really interesting to see. Um, and I've just enjoyed it. I really, you know, it's fun to be back in the classroom. It's fun to be back in the building and just a part of Stern in a more direct way. Yeah, that's awesome. And I can attest being in that class. <laughs> that's that right. <laughs> I think you're an excellent professor. It comes naturally to you. Uh, Thank really you. engaging an expert, you know, in, in so many areas of, of what we talk about in class and also funny. You crack a lot of jokes. Well, it's kind of you to say, I still could have to grade you like everyone else. But <laughs> I appreciate it. All yeah. right, I tried. It was, it was a good, it was worthy effort. Yeah. Worth the try. <laughs> yeah. That kind of brings us to the next topic I want to talk about because you are one of the coolest people I know in the clean energy industry. And I want to pick your How many do you know? Time. I mean, is that a low <laughs> bar? <Am> I... <laughs> Tough question. I will plead the fifth on that. Uh, but I want to know, where do you think the clean energy space is going to go to next? Like, what gets you so excited? What makes you wake up in the morning and go, oh, I'm so happy I made this decision all those years ago? Hmm. Yeah, it's a, I mean, I, I do feel like we've maybe reached a tipping point of sorts where, um, I hate to say it, but like the impacts of climate change are starting to be felt, yeah. right? Where it, it, it's gone from this remote thing, oh, storms are going to be worse and droughts are going to, you know, increase and um, conflict is going to emerge over this to actually starting to see those things. Um, so climate change is becoming real, which is frightening, but at least it is um, in people's consciousness um, in a much more direct way. So because of that, I do think there's a much greater um, impetus. I mean, we've finally seen efforts from the federal government getting involved. A lot more corporations are, are engaged. Um, and I say this tipping point is really important because for the most part, we have the technological solutions. There are breakthroughs yet to come. We could Im improve the efficiency of a lot of the technologies we're rolling out, certainly. And there's still innovation happening. Um, but most of what we need to mitigate climate change and keep um, scenarios within a reasonable impact, um, we have already. It's mostly about the will, the money, <laughs> uh, and all of those kind of soft things that go around the technologies. So for me, it's exciting to see that momentum actually take place. Um, we are also at a really exciting point now where renewable energy development is starting to outpace um, traditional energy development. I think renewables, um, there was more renewable capacity installed in 2022 than like all coal capacity in the United States existing, right? So we're, we're getting there. Um, there are serious, serious integration challenges now. Like how do we actually build this at scale fast enough? Um, not to mention challenges around like how do we take these intermittent renewable sources like wind and solar and use them when we need to. Um, because supply and demand on a grid need to be balanced perfectly all the time, um, which is really, really daunting. Um, so there are significant challenges ahead, but what gets me excited is like we're finally starting to tackle them. And I saw that even, you know, my last stint in consulting was about four years long. And even from the beginning of that to the end of that, some of my clients, which were very kind of conservative, risk-averse organizations, um, they started to kind of realize we got to get on board with this because it's a threat to our business. Um, and if we don't, like we are going to have, you know, risks that we can't control. And so, you know, to me, that was a really good example of, you know, people realizing that this isn't just a niche thing for environmentalists to care about. It's something that everyone needs to, to move on. 
Right. So, like, I want to go back a little bit to the technology. Because you said the technology is yeah. already there, which is incredible to hear. <laughs> now, I know they're making a ton of advancements, and I have so many things to say about that. But <laughs> what's some of the biggest technologies you see that need more investment now? I mean, I just spent spring break driving through the Grand Canyon, and there are wind farms everywhere. Yep. But, like, what's the biggest underserved one? Is it wind? Is it solar? Is there something else that we don't know about? So, it's not so much that the, the renewable technologies kind of exist, and they are coming to scale. So those are the two big ones. In the United States, wind is actually the, the bigger resource and is expected to be, especially since offshore wind can keep the power close to the population centers where the demand is, is very high. Um, the challenge is how do we integrate that, right? How do we interconnect those resources onto the grid? We need a lot more transmission lines. You may have, it's the most dull thing in, in some sense, it's just big power lines. Um, but we need a, a whole lot more of them um, to connect these new renewable sources onto our existing grid. Um, at the same time, we need a lot of investment in that grid to make it a bi-directional grid, right? Historically, power has, has just flown, has um, gone from the generators through transmission lines to distribution utilities to end users. And that's it. It's a one direction flow. We need power to be able to flow in all kinds of directions. And our grid needs a lot of investment in order to do that. Um, the other big area that's really critical for this is energy storage. Um, because, you know, the wind blows when it blows, tends to blow a lot more at night when people don't use as much energy. Solar is inherently an intermittent resource. It's hard to know when things are going to be cloudy or not. So one thing we have to do is be able to control those, um, those assets and use them when we need them. And we need energy storage to do that. Um, right now, the, the dominant form of them is lithium ion batteries. There are issues with that around mining and safety and just like, you know, what, we, what do we do with those when they've, they're spent? Um, those are overcomable challenges, but they're significant. There are new battery technologies being developed around zinc chemistry and other things that might be more effective. Um, there's also, you know, tried and true things like pumped storage that work. So for example, in the middle of the night when the wind is blowing and the wind turbines are spinning, you can literally take water and use that electricity to pump it uphill. And then it sits up there at the top of a hill. And then when you need it, you release that water, it flows through a turbine, spins and creates electricity. So, but we need a lot more storage on um, both grid scale, which means massive and um, smaller scale, like on in a house or even in your car, right? An electric vehicle is a, a battery on wheels, essentially. Um, we need all of that to be able to smooth out this load and match supply and demand. Um, the one other area I would really highlight is electrification, right? So here's where we're taking um, things that have traditionally been powered by gas or oil, and we're shifting them to become electric loads. So the, the most shining example of that is electric vehicles, right? You're taking something that traditionally uses gasoline or oil in a car, and now you're putting a battery. So you're saying you're going to do this via electricity. But the same thing exists um, at the building level, right, in terms of heating buildings, right? Most buildings uh, around here at least tend to be heated with natural gas. Um, the electrification push there is to put heat pumps in buildings. So those are um, things that can heat and cool buildings, but using electricity. The reason for all of this is because we can make our electricity sources um, greenhouse gas free much more easily than we can make oil and natural gas. So there's this huge shift of pushing all of this new electric load. But that just increases the need for more renewables, more transmission, and more storage. So that's one of the things that is pushing us to do these things um, faster and at scale. That's incredible to hear.
If you had to give a breakdown of percentage, how much effort needs to be put in by the public sector versus the private sector, what, what do you think that that balance looks like? Yeah, I mean, the public sector can set goals and the public sector has carrots and sticks, right? So the public sector can can say, you know, here are incentives for, for transitioning, right? Here's a rebate for buying this light bulb or here's a tax credit for putting solar on your house. Um, the public sector can also put significant sticks in place for big industries. So they can say, you, the electricity um, utilities, you know, there are going to be penalties for carbon emissions over certain levels, right? But the public sector doesn't control too much more beyond that. So um, ultimately, the heavy lifting is going to happen at the at the private sector. Now, a lot of that happens in the utility industry because the energy is is kind of like the critical nexus between all of these pieces. And the utility industry, while technically mostly private, um, is heavily, heavily regulated. So there is a very close relationship between the private sector and the public sector there. Um, so... You know, I don't know about the exact breakdown, but I do know that they're going to work very closely together. And that's kind of what I work on on a daily basis. I, you know, right now I'm in the public sector, but most of the entities we're helping are all in the private sector. So you, you can't really do it without both sides working together. Yeah. Well, that was a great unplanned transition because the <laughs> next thing I wanted to ask you is what can you talk about that you're working on at NYSERDA right now? What interesting programs are going on in that organization? Yeah, so I, I'm excited to talk about that. Um, so I'll mention I'll mention two of them. One of them is we are in the process of launching something called the Climate Tech Growth Platform, which is basically a statewide incubator network or incubator program um, to attract great companies from around the world to New York um, that can help us meet our greenhouse gas emissions reductions goals. Um, because we realize, you know, there are wonderful companies and startups in New York, but we need the best solutions regardless of where they originate. Mm -hmm. um, so we're building a new program. Um, it's going to be kind of publicly announced who's running that in, in the coming months. Um, and then we'll be soliciting for new companies to join that. Um, but it's a, it's a program really geared at how do you help companies move from, you know, an idea to formation of a company to how do they build a product or service that's ready for market? And then how do we help them scale the full kind of range of that? And companies are going to come in at different points along that line. Um, and we're going to help them with um, how do they raise capital? How do they build their team? How do they build a viable product? Um, and then we're going to help them test those things in New York. And we're really fixated on the big industries that drive most of the greenhouse gas emissions in New York State. Um, so the four of them that we're fixated on are buildings, um, the grid, um, industry and transportation. And so we're really focusing on helping companies in those areas. So very excited about that program um, that'll be launching this year. The other one I'll mention, you know, is something called our Manufacturing Core program. Um, and this is really focused on companies that have hard tech. They, they make stuff. They have to manufacture it at scale. And this is where I think the private, the public sector can take risks maybe that the private sector wouldn't. So, you know, we've seen a trend among venture capital firms investing in climate tech that a lot of them want to invest in software as a service, right? And, and you know, right. software platforms. And it makes sense, right? Those things are more easily scalable. They have more dependable cash flows. There's a lot of reasons why they do that. But if most of the venture capital money is going towards those things, it means that the hard tech, the hardware is not getting 
um, the attention it might deserve. Now, there are venture capital firms focusing on hardware, so I don't mean to imply it's monolithic. But we felt as a state entity that we can take that risk, right? We can invest in hardware um, because we can have a longer time horizon. We don't need to return a certain IRR you know, to our investors. It's a totally different ballgame for us. So we have a program called the Manufacturing Corps, which is an accelerator program just for um, companies that make hardware. And it's really focused on um, bringing up their manufacturing readiness. Like most of them have never worked with a manufacturer before. If they've done it, they've manufactured, you know, one or 10. How do we help them get to 100 or 1,000 or these bigger and bigger batches that we're going to need? Um, and a lot of that is working directly with the manufacturers and educating those manufacturers and trying to match up those resources so they can grow. So that's another program we're really excited about. Wow. That's really incredible. You know, honestly, before I met you, I didn't even know uh, NYSERDA was a thing. Uh, <laughs> but now that I've learned about it, it's like a really great initiative by the New York State government. Do other states have something similar to this or is this like a New York specific thing? Other states have, um, you know, what would often be called an energy office or similar. Um, New York has been out ahead of the curve on this uh, for a long time. There are other states like California and Massachusetts and Colorado that do good work. I like to think we're the best of, <laughs> of them, uh, you know, a little vanity. Um, but they exist, but New York has really invested in this. And part of the reason for that, I mean, NYSERDA has been around a long time doing a lot of different things. And I'm just, I'm part of one small appendage and I right. sort of, we do a lot of other things. But part of this is we also have um, government behind us in a real substantial way. So a few years ago, the New York State Legislature uh, passed something called the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act, which set um, some very specific targets for greenhouse gas emissions reductions. So we actually have that kind of looming behind us at all times. And everything we do is like, how can we, push the state closer to those goals. So when we build programs and we uh, recruit companies to join those programs, we're trying to say what can their solutions, if scaled, contribute to reducing greenhouse gas emissions in the state. So it's really helpful to have the oomph of that legislation behind us. A lot of states do not have that. That's interesting to hear because it is an interesting program. And if we had every state with that, maybe things would be different. But yeah. I'm glad we do have it in New York because that's very cool. <laughs> yeah. And these examples that you share help kind of illustrate what this public-private partnership looks like and why it's so critical to any of these initiatives becoming successful. Yeah, I mean, it's worth noting, like, <clears throat> it's a public sector. These are public sector programs, but they are clients in them. The companies we work with are all private sector yeah. startups. We very much want them to take root in New York and to grow here and to sell a ton of their products and services here in New York, but elsewhere. I mean, we're not under any misapprehension that these companies are only going to operate in New York. Right. If they want to go do business elsewhere around the country and around the world, fabulous. We just want to help them get a good stake here. And if they can help us read our, reach our own greenhouse gas emissions reductions goals, that's that's our number one priority. The one thing I always like to bring up, you mentioned this on the pre-interview, but like nuclear, what are your thoughts on nuclear? Because <laughs> right now the, the U.S. is just about 20% powered by nuclear. Uh, wind and solar gets all the credit, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, the other one that doesn't get any credit is uh, hydro, which is another like form of existing renewable energy that is out there. It's, yeah. it's spotty. New York actually has a lot of it, but other states like Washington and others do as well. Um, I should caveat this. I'm not a nuclear expert, um, but it's, it's, it's very controversial because on the one hand, um, you know, there have been the occasional disasters over the years, your Three Mile Islands, your Chernobyls, yeah. your things like that. Those <laughs> things loom heavily in people's minds. Mm -hmm. And alongside that, we have we have not solved the nuclear waste issue yet. We do not know what to do with spent fuel. 
we put it in the bottom of mountains, we drop it in oceans, some people want to shoot it into space. I mean, <laughs> we really do not know what to do with that. But the flip side of that is it is a carbon-free um, power source, right? And there are a lot of people arguing that we need it during this transition phase. Um, you know, I'm not sure. Like, I, I would like to believe that we could ramp up wind and solar and storage alongside them fast enough that we can keep decommissioning nuclear plants. That may not be right, though. It, we may need to hold on to them. And so um, some nuclear plants that, that were in, up for decommissioning, they may be continued. We're not seeing new nuclear facilities being built, right. but there are some people who even want to go there. You know, the nuclear waste issue, while significant, I kind of liken it, it's like how it's comparative levels of badness, right? Like that's not yeah. good, yeah. nuclear waste, but the impacts of climate change are potentially worse. It's similar to like, you might hear people complain about um, like wind turbines kill birds. They do, yeah. right? Sure. They yep. a, a single wind turbine might kill hundreds of birds or thousands of birds. That's very different from from driving thousands of bird species to extinction, right? Though, right. So it's a, yeah. it's all a matter of degree. Similarly, people when they talk about mining for um, lithium for batteries, right? The impacts yeah. of that terrible, and we should do a better job of protecting workers and the countries where those things are happening. But again, compare those impacts to the impacts of climate change. So we may need to choose um, the lesser of evils here, and it is possible that nuclear and the and all the risks associated with that are in that class. That's an interesting answer. I love that because nothing is ever that simple. If things were that simple, things would be different. <laughs> yes. So I, exactly. I love I love the full scope of the situation there. Yeah. Well, this has been a really exciting conversation. So we're so glad that you came here to join us. Absolutely. Um, but before we wrap up, we want to ask you your advice for current students or potential future students who might be thinking about going into the clean energy space because I know that topics like a, a, or opportunities like a clean energy startup or a clean energy venture capital fund yep. or a tech space sound interesting, but to be fair... Terrifying. Well, I was going to say <laughs> going to a utility or something of that sort or even more of a, a public uh, sector opportunity doesn't maybe appeal to all MBA students. So what advice do you have? What opportunities do you think are out there that could be really prime for MBA students to come in and make an impact? That's a great question. I mean, first I'll say, you know, avail yourself of the university while you're here, right? I mean, like Stern has amazing resources, but like this is the largest private university in the country, right? So like check out what's happening at Wagner, the public policy school and the law school and everywhere else because you know, you're going to leave here with all of your business school connections and relationships, and that's fabulous, um, and those will be very helpful to you. But expand that to the rest of the university while you can. That's number one. Yeah. Number two is um, you don't realize it while you're there, but being a student is like a free ticket to like anything in the city. And I don't mean like literally getting into things, although it can work for that. Um, I mean like you can talk to anyone um, people will take the time. Not everyone, you know, people are busy, but like right. we used to call these informational interviews, but you should mm -hmm. just go out and reach there because people assume that like students aren't, don't have ulterior motives. They just want to learn. They're interested in it. They're not there to sell you something. Um, so, you know, number two is like get out there and meet people in the industry. They will talk to you. They will help you because this is an industry that has a ton of change and a lot of people in it were not in it 
a year ago, three years ago, five years ago. So a lot of career movers, a lot of um, pivoting going on. So people are welcoming in that regard and they will definitely talk to you. Third is, and to, to your point, like there are an incredible range of jobs here, right? So if you are, you know, looking for something really exciting, yeah, a startup or a venture capital firm, those are great um, those are great ideas. On the other end of the spectrum, if you are risk averse, there are these huge institutions that are working on climate change, right? Yeah. That could be utilities, but it could also be banks, right? Banks have big yep. new aspects. I worked at a, at a fairly large consulting firm with a practice here, right? That's another opportunity. Like there are some big, big organizations that are focused on this. There's also a huge um, range in between, right? There are all these like companies that have gotten bigger. They're not startups anymore. Some of them are publicly traded, but small. So it's not like you're taking the same risk. You're not employee number 10. You might be employee number 100 or employee number 500. So there's enough infrastructure. There's enough capital behind these companies, um, you know, but you're not taking as much of a risk. The um, IRA, the recent federal legislation, um, is really pushing a lot of demand um, for those companies' services. So there's a lot out there right now. You know, when when there's all this talk about a recession, I don't see it at all in the energy space. Like wow. when That's I look, great. like there are just so many jobs. And in fact, people are having trouble filling those jobs. Now, part of that's about like training, like, oh, we need more engineers and we don't have them. But I promise you there are opportunities for smart, talented business school students who want to get into this. You will be welcomed with open arms. Um, you just need to look. Um, and I'm happy to help anyone who's, who's looking, you know. Wow. That's amazing. That last point, I think, will really <laughs> resonate <laughs> with the number of students right now who are unsure about the economic situation and, you know, what, what opportunities yeah. look like. So. Let me just reiterate, I, I graduated in 2009 during the financial crisis. Right. Um, and, and it worked out. Like, people, people got jobs, uh, you know, not always the ones they thought they were going to get. Right. Um, but I've read some studies that say in the long term, that kind of adversity is actually good for you. The people who come out of school during tougher economic times have actually more um, successful careers because they have to learn how to, you know, just hustle and make it work. Wow. So stick with it. you got a long career ahead of you. You know, a year or two isn't going to matter. And, you know, remember this. The job you have when you leave business school is absolutely not the job you're going to have 10 years from now. So um, there's nothing as constant as change. Yeah. 100% true. Well, the last thing I want to know, you had a great time at NYU. You were like a model student. And now you're back here teaching. But what was your funniest or fondest moment of being a student here? That's a fun question. And so why wasn't it a stern social? <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't a stern social. I, I, did, I did enjoy a lot of those things. Um, so my MBA two year, I went with a group of friends for spring break. And we, I don't know why we chose these cities, but we went to... Amsterdam and Dubai. Um, Interesting. The, the weirdest combination of cities. <laughs> Let me just say this. If you're going to go to one of the most free and crazy cities in the world and then one of the most tightly laced cities in the world, you should probably start with the tightly laced one and work your way <laughs> to the other one. But we didn't. I don't know whether the flights were or whatever. But I remember very distinctly we were flying from Amsterdam to Dubai and we were all like, listen, we're coming from Amsterdam. It's 
very important that we all look respectable. So we all like put on button down shirts for the flight <laughs> and we got dressed up and we were like, we're going to make it through customs. We're going to, we're going to do this right. And we did, we survived. We, we lived to tell the tale, but I, I did love that trip. It was a lot of fun. And I, and those, those guys that I took that trip with are still extremely close friends with mine. I text with them all the time. I see them when I can. That's why I love asking the question. Yeah. It's always the things you don't expect in business school that are the fondest memories. Yeah. You don't think about recruiting or the, when you get your dream job, it's always <laughs> yeah. the fun trips and experiences. Yeah, and people always talk about, you know, business school is for the network. <laughs> and th- saying it that way makes it sound awful, right? Yeah, but it's about it's friendship. for your friends, Absolutely. right? It's it's your friends. These lifelong relationships that are so meaningful. Right, why do we have to talk about them in such, like, business terms, yeah. right? Right, like, I was saying, like, I made so many friends in business school, and a friend meant, you mean network, right? And I'm like, well, I don't know about that. <laughs> Listen, yeah. your friends will help you professionally, I'm sure, right? Um yeah, but friends first, business associates second. Exactly right. Excellent. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much, Jake, for being on the show. This was a really, really interesting conversation. Thanks so much for having me. It's a lot of fun. Glad you do it. That was a really good discussion you had with Jake. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. That was so cool. Clean energy is like this thing that you always hear about, read about but you never get the chance to speak to an expert about it. I think it's one of the coolest things about business school that you get the chance and time to explore that with an expert. Yeah, and he has such an interesting career path. You know, you could meet someone who has worked in the utility space for decades, but he has done so many different things that he's got such a broad perspective on the space and what's happening that he really knows what he's talking about. Exactly. And, and that's what I love about this show. He's an amazing person, but he's also a stern alum. Yeah. And he exemplifies perfectly why you go to business school. Yep. Come here, figure out what you want to do, and then explore that. And then you tend to find success doing it too. Yeah. And you come to campus and utilize all these different resources. I mean, he started a club. He got involved with the Greening Campus uh, Initiative. You know, he's sitting on the advisory board for the CSB. He's so involved. And there, there are so many opportunities to take advantage of. And he really took advantage of them. He did. And now he's back teaching here, which shows you that once part of the Stern community, always a part of the Stern community. That is super cheesy. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well. I love it. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks.